Anyway, uh, good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. How many of you are familiar with The Onion? Okay, maybe like a third, a quarter, not that many. Okay, so The Onion is a satirical news website. They post fake articles that are funny. They're, they're satirical, they are making fun of politicians and celebrities and whoever. They also do some articles that are just like poking fun at just silly things that people do. Like, here, here's an example for you. Man, pretty sure he could run this company into ground way better than boss. <laughs> kind of cute, right? Ice Cube that man couldn't pry from Trey lives to see another day. This is my favorite one. Man already has whole sentence lined up for later in the conversation. <laughs> we do that, right? Yeah, totally. Now, I was made aware in the last year that there is another website that does the same sort of thing, but they tend to poke fun at Christians, too. It's written by Christians, but it's called the Babylon Bee, which is just a great name for a newspaper in any world. And so here's, here's a few examples from the Babylon Bee. Head deacon expertly flings collection plate at man trying to slip out during offering. Local family commutes 700 miles to attend church that meets their exact specifications. <laughs> and this, this is my favorite one. Tragic. This church basis has been unable to stop bobbing his head since 2004. <laughs> Pretty great. Now, every once in a while, they'll post like a, some sort of gimmick that's not just an article. It'll be like a survey or, or, or something else. So this last summer, they posted the sermon generator. Which I said, you know, that's great. I, I need a sermon generated this week. That'd be really helpful. So you literally just press a button, and it gives you a title, and it gives you your three main points, right? Because any, any good sermon has three main points. And so they, they've written in, you know, different phrases and catchwords and things. So it's, sometimes they don't always make sense, but every once in a while you randomly generate it, and you get a really good one that's just perfect. So let me, let me show you a few of the ones that I got here. Your sermon title is Grasping the Boundaries of Humanness. Point number one, God won't give you more than you can handle, so you should take it easy, because Jesus is your boyfriend. <laughs> number two, stretching the trials of your life. The power is in you, so you should declare words of victory, because God wants you to be ridiculously rich. <laughs> and then, grasping the dreams of your greatness. God has already beaten your personal Goliath, so you can do life together, because God is really lonely without you. Now, I, I know that not everyone is into, like, sarcastic humor. Obviously, this is poking fun at some of the things that we tend to say. And, I mean, there's a little bit of truth to it, right? We can be sometimes a little bit trite, a little bit simplistic, uh, a little too quick to jump on an answer that makes us feel good about ourselves. You know, God loves me, and therefore I'm good, and, you know, whatever flows out of that. There's truth in that. But you have to go deeper, right? You can't just stop there. That's not, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the answer. We've been doing Jeremiah in our, in our devotionals lately, right? We've been doing the soap readings. We just finished Jeremiah, actually. Um, but one of the passages that you'll see quoted all the time in Jeremiah is Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a hope and a future. It's a great verse, right? It's a true promise of God to his people. And you know what? It comes true. The, the, the people of Israel are in exile, and God brings them back to their homeland and restores them and rebuilds the temple, and they're, they're brought back 
to the Lord. It's a great thing. But there's another promise that's also true, which is Jeremiah 21.10, which is God saying, for the plans that I have for the city are for harm and not for good. This, this city is going to be burned with fire, and Babylon is going to come and slave you. That came true, too. God has been giving all these warnings to the people of Israel and saying, you should repent. You need to repent. The terrible things are going to happen if you don't repent. And they didn't. And that happened. And then they're in exile, and God gives Jeremiah 29.11 as a promise. And they are restored, right? Both promises come true. Both things are true. You have to go through the difficult thing sometimes to come to the good thing. You can't just go straight to the good thing and say, that's all there is. This week, we transitioned into Lamentations, right, in our soaps. We did Lamentations 1 and 2 this week, I think. And uh, Lamentations is a lot like Jeremiah in that it's about the suffering of Israel, right? It's, it's not a particularly uplifting read, I guess, <laughs> if you look at it a certain way. Um, but Lamentations is actually maybe one of my favorite books in the Bible. And the reason is that it uses something that's called chiastic structure, or chiasm, which is a fancy term that basically means if you are to lay out all of the verses in a chapter in Lamentations, or if you lay out all the verses across the whole book, the verses start with a certain Hebrew letter. And you'll see, like, verse 1 starts with A, and then B, and then C, and D, and it goes all the way up to the letter K, and it goes back down again. So the, the chapters do this, and the whole book does this. And it's sort of just like a poetical thing. It's, it's part of the, the art form of the writing. But it's also to make a point, to, to emphasize certain things. So there's, there's parallels, right? Like the, the A verse and the A verse are going to be kind of similar, and the Bs are going to be kind of similar. And then you get up to the K, and the K is like the point. Like if you were to turn this sideways, it would be kind of like a mountain with like a mountain top that you go to, right? The mountain top for Lamentations is maybe my favorite scripture in all of the Bible. And I'm actually going to skip past a couple here. Uh, is this verse right here. This is right in the middle of Lamentations. This is the, the pinnacle. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That's the thing that the writer of Lamentations is trying to emphasize. That's the point. You have to go through all of the difficulty and all the muck and the mire and, and where is the Lord to get to that point. You can't just skip to the middle like I just did. But then you come to this point and it sticks with you, right? There's hope in that verse after going through everything that you go through in Lamentations 1 and 2. And then you come back down off the mountain too. You read Lamentations 4 and 5 and you think, okay, how do we, how do we bring that into our circumstances now? How do we bring that into our life now? We're in Luke now, of course. Uh, we're not going to stick super long here. But we've been in Luke for a long time. And last week, we started Luke 20. We looked at the, uh, this kind of face-off that's happening between the religious teachers and Jesus, right? We, Kurt brought some people up here on stage. And, you know, the, the Pharisees and the religious teachers are trying to trap Jesus into saying something that's going to trip him up. And he just destroys them, right? He just, he, they, can't, they can't compete with him in an argument, in a debate. They're still kind of in that setting. Jesus is still talking to the group of people. He's talking to the religious teachers, and he's talking to uh, the people that are standing by. 
and he gives a parable. And it's the parable of the wicked tenants. And that's where we're going to be sitting today. And kind of like Lamentations 1 and 2, it's not super fun. <laughs> it doesn't have a super fun ending. Uh, I mean, it, it sort of does in a sense, but for the most part, it's kind of a doom and gloom parable. And it's not encouraging to read it first. But I think if we dig into it, if we really dig into it, if we do the hard work of, of going through the difficulty of it and what God is saying in that, what Jesus is saying in it, and if we look at our own hearts and see what he's saying about our hearts, there's going to be some incredible fruit from it. And it's going to be some incredible hope, too, um, in a way that does not come out unless you go through the difficulty of it. So I think we got Bruce McCoy praying for us today. So Bruce, would you just lift up the sermon, lift up our hearts and our ability to hear what God is saying and lift up another church? Uh, Robert, uh, when you asked me to pray earlier, uh, I had my sentence all lined up and from that picture of the onion before, it's out the window now. So <laughs> I can say this, um, Heavenly Father, um, you've given us an exceptional day today. Um, it's a wonderful day uh, here uh, in this country. Uh, we have the privilege of gathering together, worshiping you. Um, you've given us an exceptional church. Um, what a wonderful group of people. Um, I pray for a blessing on this building, on this property, on the staff that manages daily decisions. Mm -hmm. Each person here this morning uh, has a burden that they bring with them. We ask that you lighten it this morning just a little bit, uh, if not more. Um, and uh, you've brought us an exceptional young man here, uh, Robert Kelly. What a wonderful thing to have him sharing um, his thoughts this morning. Uh, we would ask that you have your hand on his shoulder have him deliver the right words, the right thoughts. He's put a lot of work into this sermon. Uh, give us the ears to hear. This morning, um, we um, ask for blessing on um, church in <coughs> New York. Akron, New York, outside of Buffalo, the First Methodist Church. Um, you know the needs there. Thank you, Bruce. So we're just going to read the parable, and we'll start talking about it afterwards. But I think it's, it's good when you're, when you're looking at a parable to just, just take it all in at once before you even try to start thinking about it or analyzing anything. So we're just going to read it here. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
When they, the, the people, heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Like I said, not super uplifting when you first read it, right? Now, the thing about parables, of course, is that there's kind of a story within a story. You've got the main story that's happening, and you've got some sort of deeper meaning, right? It may already be kind of obvious to you what sort of the deeper meaning is here. But I really think that if you, if you want to understand a parable correctly, you have to just read the story by itself first and see, does the story itself make sense to you? Because if it doesn't, you may not understand the deeper meaning either. So I'm reading this parable, and I'm trying to just understand it and make sure you know, I'm not missing anything. And I'm thinking, this doesn't make any sense. Who do these tenants think that they are? Why do they think that they can do this and get away with it? Like, in what world is this possible? Why do they think that they can beat shame and send away all three of the owner's servants? If, if your landlord comes to collect your rent, can you do that? No. <laughs> There's going to be some very negative consequences if you try to do that. Why do, they think, why do they think that they can get away with this? And, and not just send them away without like, giving them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they beat them up and they shame them. Now, I was kind of curious, like, what, shaming, like, what does that mean exactly? And there's a story in the Old Testament that it made me think of, actually, that I think people who are listening to the story might have thought of, too. When David was king of Israel, he sent some messengers to another king, and the king thought that those messengers were coming to spy out his land. They were coming to essentially get ready for an attack. And so he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shame these messengers. Like, how dare they come to my kingdom this way? I'm going to shame them. So what he does is he shaves off half their beards, like just half down the side. So this part's still here and this is gone. And he cuts off their clothes at the waist and sends them home. Utter humiliation, right? Imagine being a royal messenger of the king with a royal uniform and having that happen to you. That's the kind of shaming that the people might have been thinking of when they're hearing this story. How do the tenants think that they can get away with this? It makes absolutely no sense. The second thing that didn't make sense to me, why do they think they can keep the inheritance by killing the son? You know, they're, they're working this field, and the, the, the landowner is off on a long journey. He's somewhere else. He's not around. And, you know, in that culture in that day and age, actually, if, if that kind of situation happened, you know, at a certain point, if the landowner doesn't come back, well, it's, it's kind of my land now, right? He's not here. He's gone. But... He's going to come back. That's going, to, that's going to happen in this scenario. He's not just going to stay away forever. But they don't think that's true. They think that they can do whatever the heck they want to do, and they think the sun is coming, and if there's no sun, there's no air, it's just going to go to us. It's not going to go to anybody else. What, what else is he going to do? We'll just get to keep it for ourselves. It'll be a big gain for us, right? So we're going to kill the sun. We're going to, we're going to take him out of the picture entirely. And they think that they can get away with this. They actually legitimately think that they can get away with this. The last thing that didn't make sense to me about this parable is actually kind of outside the parable. The people listening to this story hear the end of the parable where Jesus says, what do you think is going to happen to those tenants? Of course, the landowner is going to come back. He's going to destroy them, 
for what they did to his son and his messengers, and he's going to give the field to somebody else, right? And the people listening say, surely not. No way. There's no way that's going to happen. That doesn't make any sense. So it seems like the people listening actually kind of agree with the tenants. They think the tenants are going to get away with it too. And I'm thinking, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think it makes sense that the landowner is going to come back and, and destroy those tenants and give it to somebody else, right? That, that seems pretty logical to me. So why do the people listening not think so? I think the, the answer to all of these questions kind of goes together. And this is where we start to transition into looking at the deeper meaning of the parable. So, I mean, I'm sure you've already guessed the landowner is God, right? And the field, the, the vineyard is Israel. And the tenants are the people of Israel, or, or maybe more specifically the leaders of Israel, the people who are in charge and are, and are leading the people, right? God's people turn away from him, and so he sends messengers to them, one after another. He sends the judges, and he sends the prophets. And what do they do to them? They beat them and kill them and shame them, right? Jeremiah gets thrown in a pit. That's what happened to them. That's what the people of Israel did to God's messengers that he sent to bring his word to them, to, to help them, to bring them back to him, to, to give life. And that was their response. And then we get to the sun, right? The sun comes, and at this point, the parable isn't actually over in real life yet, is it? Jesus hasn't died yet. And yet in this parable, Jesus is saying, the son is killed by the tenants. As you saw from last week, you know, the, the, the Pharisees and the religious teachers are up here listening to Jesus. And they're stupid, but they're not stupid. They know that this parable is about them. They realize at this point, Jesus is saying to us, I'm the son, and you're the tenants. You are the ones who are doing this. You're evil, and God is going to destroy you for what you're doing to his people. And they say, no way. Absolutely not, we're not the tenants. It, no way are we the tenants. You're the one who's coming in here out of nowhere. You haven't studied. You don't know the law like we know the law. And you're trying to teach God's people, and people are hanging on your every word. Who do you think you are? How dare you? And Jesus looks at them, and he says, you're going to kill me. And they say, you bet we will. If that's not sobering, I don't know what is. That is a very dark moment, right? So I'm thinking about this story, and I'm thinking about what is the answer to these questions? And I think God gave me, he highlighted something for me, uh, a, a, a sort of answer, and it actually comes from the book of James. So we're going to go to James now for, for most of the rest of the sermon and, and kind of sit there for a little bit. And the answer that he gave me as to, to how these people could think this came from, comes from James 3 and 4. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's sort of the situation that the religious teachers are in, right? That's what it's come to. The tenants, too. I mean, obviously, they're kind of the same person. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James uses those terms a lot uh, in talking about this kind of thing. Bitter jealousy. Who does this guy think he is? This guy from Nazareth, from, from nowhere, comes in here and thinks that he can teach in the temple? We're the teachers. We're the ones who are supposed to be leading. Selfish ambition? The field should be ours. We're the ones who work it. We're the ones who put in all the hard labor. Why should the landowner get any of the fruit of the field? It's our field. We should get to keep the gain from the field. We deserve it. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Have you ever caught yourself thinking the way that the tenants are thinking or the way that the religious teachers are thinking? I have. Uh, I think maybe I actually have for most of my life. And I only really became aware of it or, or more acutely aware of it in the last year and a half. I, I work in the field of public accounting. I'm a tax accountant, um, which is not quite as boring as it sounds, but almost. And I started doing that about three years ago after I graduated from college. And it was extremely difficult when I first started. On my first day, one of my coworkers said to me, you're gonna be pretty useless for the first three, no, six months. So just do your best, ask a lot of questions, whatever. We're not expecting a lot of you, honestly. And he was right. <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of time being very confused. Uh, people would have conversations in front of me, and I understood maybe 10 or 15% of what was said. And I had a degree in accounting, and I had no idea what they were talking about whatsoever. Couldn't do anything on my own. Somebody had to hold my hand every step of the way in, in any simple task that I was doing. And I would sit there and work on whatever assignment I was supposed to be working on, and I would sit there and just pray, God, help me understand what I'm looking at. Help me understand what I'm looking at. I have no idea what is going on, and I just tried desperately to copy whatever we did the previous year. Because when in doubt, follow last year. <laughs> it was hard. It was extremely hard. And then one day, it wasn't so hard anymore. It got better. Um, I started to be pretty decent at it, actually. Uh, I got promoted, and I started to think, you know, I'm actually pretty good at this. I'm actually, I'm actually pretty smart. You know, I'm one of the, I'm one of the trusted ones. You know, when managers have a problem and you know they need something solved right away, you know, I'm, I'm one of the people that they go to. They don't go to these other people over there. They go to me, right? I'm, I'm one of the the people in the in crowd who knows what's going on and really understands how things work. And so I started to devote more and more time to what I was doing. It's the kind of field where you can put a lot of time into it, a lot of overtime. There's always work to do. And uh, my firm actually pays overtime. So I was thinking, oh, yeah, I'm getting some reward out of this. You know, I'm getting paid extra for the extra work that I do. And you know, during busy season, where everybody's working a lot of hours during tax season, 
But there would be nights where we would get to 10 or 11 p.m., and the manager would say to me, you know, you should, probably, you should go home. And I'd say, yeah, I'm about to. I'm just going to finish this up. And I would stay another hour or two or three working on whatever I was working on. And th there were nights where it actually needed to get done that night. But there were nights where it didn't. It didn't always need to be done right then. But I was thinking, you know, I am... I'm doing good work right here. I'm helping my manager out by getting this project done early. I am helping myself out. I'm getting some overtime pay for this. Um, you know, this is, this is a good thing. And it doesn't matter I'm not getting much sleep. You know, that's not important. I'm, 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 doing, I'm doing something that's important, right? This is, this is going to give me value. This is going to give me worth, essentially, is what I was thinking. I was at a phase in my life where I was feeling very rejected and doubted by a lot of people, even outside of work. I felt very unloved in a lot of scenarios that I was in. There were a lot of people who didn't understand why I was doing what I was doing. Like, why would you, do a, like, why would you work at a job that makes you work that much? Like, why would you want to do that? They just they didn't get it. And I wanted to prove those people wrong. I wanted to show them I'm worth something, you know? I'm doing something important. I'm an important person because of what I'm doing. What, what you're doing doesn't matter. Your job is silly. Whatever you're doing is not important. I'm doing something that, that's going to matter. It's going to be worth something. I'm going to be way ahead of you because of what, what I'm doing. And, and this, is, this is worth all the extra time that I'm putting into it. The, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's the way of the world, right? You read any business article today, Ambition is good, cash is king, do whatever you have to do to get to the top, right? I'm three years into my career. Imagine where I could be in 20 if I kept on that line of thinking, if I kept thinking that way about what I'm doing and approaching my life that way. Where would I be in 20 years? That's evil to think that way. Because, because where does that leave you? That, that leads you to being judgmental of other people, right? I was feeling judged by people. I was feeling doubted by people and rejected by people. And so I said, I'm going to prove you wrong. And then in turn, I became judgmental of them, right? I started to make judgments about who they were as people because of what they were doing with their time and their lives. And this happens in the world, right? This happens in the workplace. It, you know, it, it starts out as... as what seems like a small thing, right? You know, somebody says something like, uh, you know, we, we can give that project to that person, even they can't screw it up. Or it escalates a little bit, you know? You say something about someone, you say, you know, that person's kind of incompetent. Or maybe even a little stronger, that person's an idiot. You know, that person's just, they're, they're not worth anything, is essentially what's being said there, right? That is evil. That is wrong under any circumstance to say that about anyone, right? People made in the image of God. How, how dare I say things like that to people? And when we do this, it comes out in our words primarily, right? That's primarily the mechanism by which this is done. James says this about, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, he says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. How, how could I do this? How could I say good things to one person and evil things to another within the same week, the same day, the same five minutes? And yet I was doing it. Now, I know this is a, kind of a dark picture <laughs> of humanity, even, of, of our, our world and who we can be. But this is, this is who we are without Christ, right? This is who we are without Jesus in our lives. One of my favorite authors is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he wrote a lot of really fantastic works for Christians. He was a pastor in Germany during World War II, one of the people who was against everything that was happening in his own country. He was actually associated with a plot to kill Hitler and was executed as a result before the end of the war. But fantastic, amazing man. And one of the books that he wrote is called The Cost of Discipleship. It's one of my favorite books. You should read it if you want to, to learn anything about following Jesus. He, it's, it's like one of the top five books you should read. But one of the things he says is, he says that when you know Christ, you no longer have any direct relationships with people. It's no longer just me talking to you. Christ now stands between us. In the same way that when you give someone a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, you're giving it to Jesus, you're doing it unto him. When I speak ill of someone, to them or about them, I'm spitting in the face of Christ too, right? I hear my voice cry out among the scoffers. That's what's happening. Even with Christ, we can become like this. It can happen even when you've known him for a long time. It happened to the religious teachers, right? They knew God. They knew the word. They knew the law. And yet they became so stuck up and conceited that they killed Jesus himself. They couldn't see who Jesus was. They were blinded. They didn't understand because of the way that they were thinking, the, the darkened way of thinking that they had fallen into. James calls this double-mindedness. Uh, people in the world aren't double-minded. They're, they're just got a single focus, right? They're just they're going for selfish ambition and, and whatever can build them up, right? Because that does, what else is there when you don't know Christ, right? That's all there is to go for, is to, to build myself up as, as much as I can and get as much as I can so that I'm, I'm safe, so that I'm protected, so that I'm, I'm set. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's double-minded. He's looking in two different directions. He's trying to get two different things at once. He asks God for things in order to build up himself, in order to get his selfish ambition, in order to beat out the people he's jealous of. That's why that person asks for things from God, right? And it says that person will not receive anything from God. God is good and wise enough not to answer a prayer like that. So where do we turn from this? How do we move away from something like that if wherever you are? Maybe that's not you at all, but it could be. We all have to understand that no matter how close we are to Christ, we could fall. The, the man who thinks he's not going to fall is the first to fall. That's where you start to get into the dangerous ground. 
So if we're going to turn away from this, if we're going to turn towards life and towards hope and towards good things, where do we turn to? James says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, but the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want that to be my life. I want to be pure and gentle and impartial and sincere and reasonable and able to give fruit to the landowner when he asks for it from his field, right? That's what I want my life to be. How do we get there? If that's not us, if I am the double-minded man who is seeking two things at once, asking and not receiving because he asks selfishly to spend it on himself, what do I do? James says the answer is humility. God gives more grace. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. How do we do that? How do you humble yourself when you're not humble? <laughs> That's a daunting proposition and, and maybe one that you don't even know where to begin, right? How do you do that? C.S. Lewis talks a little bit about humility in mere Christianity. He says this, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. The humble person can see God. The, the religious teachers, they could not see God. Right? He was right in front of them, and they could not see him. They thought that he was the opposite of God. They thought he was a blasphemer. They literally could not see when God was right in front of them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the single-hearted, the people who have one focus. They're not double-focused. They have one heart, one mind, and it's towards God. And when God comes, they can see him. They can recognize him when he's right in front of them. I want to be able to do that. <laughs> so how do we do it? How do we do that? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Not to the double-minded man, not to the one who's asking to spend it on himself, but to the one who really wants to see God, the one who really wants to, he will give it. He gives freely without reproach. All we have to do is ask and, and really want it. And if you don't want it, all you have to do is acknowledge before God, hey, I don't want it. I'm double-minded. I know that I am. I know that when I usually ask for you for things, it's because I want to build myself up. That's usually what I've been doing. Just acknowledge that before God. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He loves us and wants us to be close to him. He will do it if we ask him to. And when we do that, 
we get built on a new foundation, right? Jesus ends this parable by talking about the stone that the builders rejected and how it's become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is that stone. The builders, the, the, the teachers, and the religious leaders, they rejected him. They said, nope, he's, he's not God, he's not the Messiah, he's a nobody, in fact, he is evil and we should kill him. They rejected him, but he's gonna become the cornerstone. He's gonna become the very foundation on which everything is built. In order to be built on that new foundation, the old building has to be swept away, right? That stone falls and it crushes anything that it lands on. Anything that's trying to, to stand up on its own is gonna be destroyed. But if we fall on Christ, will we broke into pieces? Doesn't sound good either, but it will be. If we fall on Christ and let him break our pride to pieces and our selfish ambition to pieces, that's that song we were singing earlier, right? Take my pride and my selfish ambition. That's what he wants to do for us but we have to let him break it. We have to let him take it from us and destroy it utterly, right? There's no alternative. I know this is kind of a doom and gloom sermon. <laughs> I know that. I, I, I just really wanted to be faithful to what I think Jesus is warning us about here. And I think the, the, the other side of the coin, the hope of this is, when this really happens, when God really does this in our hearts, when we're really made new and made humble before him, there is greater joy than we've ever known. And there's a very specific reason for that. Have you ever known a humble person who wasn't happy? Have you ever met a happy person who wasn't humble? I think that the happiest people are always the humblest. And the reason for that I think, is that a proud person is not surprised by anything, right? They think that they've seen it all. They know what's going to happen. They know what the end result is going to be because they're the one who knows everything, right? But a humble person is surprised and is in wonder at everything that they see, right? A humble person sees a, a sunrise or a sunset or the ocean, or an unexpected gift from a friend, or opposable thumbs, or eyes, or goodness, or truth, or beauty, and they say, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. Can you believe that God made that? Can you believe the goodness of our God? That's an incredible thing. Proud people don't say things like that, do they? They're thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about something that's outside of them. They're not thinking about something that's, that's bigger than them. And they're not happy. They're not joyful. It's impossible to be joyful when you're, when you're that stuck up. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. It's not a thing. But when God makes us humble, that can be our life. That can be the life that we live. A very wise man once said that the chief pleasure in life is surprise, being surprised at things. Another translation for the word for grace is surprise. Is there anything better than a gift that you weren't expecting? Is there anything better than that? That's Christ. He is the gift that we weren't worthy of, that we weren't expecting, 
and he came anyway, and he gave himself to us and for us, and now we have his life. We, we can have that life. We can have that humility if we just ask. Never stop praying. Proud people don't pray, or they pray in order to be heard, right? The religious teachers in the square are praying in order to be heard. When we pray, and we're not in a corporate setting like this, praying for something together, we pray in secret. And our Heavenly Father, who loves us, hears us. That's what we're going for. That's what I want to go for. I want, I want him to give me that wisdom which is pure and gentle and reasonable and open to whatever that he wants to do, whatever he wants to give, wherever he wants to lead, even if it means taking the things that I've built up for myself, the things that I thought were going to make me worth something. He can do more. He can do so much more than what I can do for myself. Lord, we ask that you would shine your light in our hearts, that you would show us what you want to do in us, that you would show us your gloriousness, Lord, that we would forget about ourselves in the light of who you are, in the light of what you're doing. Give us that wisdom from above, Lord, that wisdom which is not just knowing what to do in a scenario, but is a way of living before you, is a way of, of grace, Father. Pray that you would give that to us, Lord, and that we'd be, we would be filled with wonder at who you are, filled with surprise at the gifts that you bring, the good things that you do for us, Lord. We pray all this in the name of Christ, who loves us and died for us. Amen. We'll go ahead and reach in the chair in front of you and grab two cups. Go ahead and pull the first cup, the bread. Let's pray, Lord. This is representative of your body, which is the thing, the stone that the builders rejected. This is the thing that became the cornerstone, but before it did that, we broke you. We did that with our pride, with our brokenness, with our sin. So we stick our finger in that cup and we crush it, representative of the fact that we crushed you. But Lord, that's not the end of the story. Lord, it turns out that that thing that, that we did, that, that crushing of you is actually what brought us life. So we receive this bread with that in mind. So go ahead and partake. Go ahead and lift the juice in front of you. Lord, this juice is representative of your blood. The fact of the matter is we can't actually do this without you. If, if it's just us, we are stuck in sin. We're stuck in pride. We can't be humble on our own. We can only go so far. But because of your blood has cleansed us and washed away our sin, we can actually accomplish this. We can actually tame our tongues. We can actually be more like you. We can be crushed by that, that cornerstone and it can bring us life. So we receive 
this cup that is your blood this morning in hopes that it would bring us new life. So go ahead and take that cup. Ushers, go ahead and come forward.